everyone. Thank you for listening to Peer Pressure Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If you're not using Apple iTunes, you can go to Apple iTunes and subscribe to Peer Pressure Podcast. That way you know whenever there's a new episode and it helps me figure out who's listening and where and when. Thanks to everyone for your comments and suggestions and for tuning in. Today's guest is Dorit Chrysler. She is an Austrian thereminist. She plays the theremin. I've known her for many, many years. We used to uh, know each other back in the 90s when she had a rehearsal space that I practiced in with my band. She had a band called Halcyon. Uh, we used to run around in the same circles. And since then, she's become an expert in all things theremin. So we're going to talk about the world of theremin today. She started the New York Theremin Society. She has done a bunch of soundtrack work and really interesting music. She recently composed the soundtrack for the German version on Netflix of the TV show M. She will be appearing at Moogfest in Durham, North Carolina, April 25th to 28th, and also in San Francisco on April 13th with the San Francisco Symphony. So she's got a lot of great stuff going on. You can check out her music at DoritChrysler.com. And we had a really good time talking about music and politics, which is what we do here on Pierre Pressure. She played three different songs live on her theremin with backing tracks. So when you hear theremin stuff playing, that's her playing live. And I don't know if you've ever tried the theremin, but it is a difficult instrument to play, to say the least. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dorit Chrysler.
But you have to tell me who is Plastic Mold. Plastic Mold? Yeah, who is the sponsor, the mysterious plastic sponsor? Plastic Mold is our sponsor. They pay thousands yeah. of dollars Yeah, who are they? Is it, are they a fictional... Uh, no, they're very... <laughs> yes, they're is fictional. It a, they are? Yeah, they're fictional. <laughs> I like that you, <laughs> that you were taken by them. Yes, I was really wondering what are they producing. So can yeah, I buy this? Can I acquire can this one? product? It well, sounds it, so promising. It's the, um, so it's the newest um, venture of uh, Cynthia Plastercaster. You know mm. who she is? Mm. No, She's I sure would like to meet her. The, she started in the '60s, making um, plaster casts of of rock stars' penises. She was called Cynthia Plastercaster. Yeah. She was in Chicago. Was she a groupie before she, she was decided a to? And then she was she. She became, thought this has to be preserved yes, for so she, the eternity. So she started with, she did like Jimi Hendrix and she has all these penis molds. So her new thing now is, is plastic molds. So that's who the, my sponsor is. It's very um, prominent, uh, <laughs> very prominent financial sourcing. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's well, I think you only accepted the sponsoring under the condition that you see all her different products from the 60s. Exactly. Yeah. And then she she had to use me as a... Oh, yeah. she had to also yeah. insisted that you yeah. add your um, apparatus to I the legacy. My, my, to the monolith, to the... <laughs> We're already recording. This is great. It's going great so, so far, Dorit. Yeah. We're so, to good stuff. Dorit Chrysler, this is nice to talk to you. It's been a long time. Hello, Pierre. Um, the theremin is such an amazing instrument, and you've—I feel like you've become sort of one—you've become one of the foremost authorities of it well, in America, at least. Who would have thought back when we were in that basement that I would ever become a thereminist? So we, I used to re rehearse in your basement back mm -hmm. in the beautiful glory days of the 90s. I mean, it, it, there's such a fine line between being schmaltzy and being, you know, sentimental and being, I mean, do you ever find yourself thinking back about these, these days that we lived through in the 90s and trying to not be so <laughs> sentimental? Actually, really, no, because... Um I, no, I don't find enough time to really lean back and revel in those days. But um, sometimes they're just glimpses of moments where I realize that um, they were definitely part of, of the bigger puzzle. And um, I feel so grateful for all the many incredibly talented people that passed through back then and how... There That's such was a great no, way to look at it. Yeah, there was yeah. no thought about it. It it just happened all so organically and naturally. And in retrospect, if I realized how much that inf informed, you know, my artistic uh, growth and 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 perception. So that sometimes blows my mind when I think of it. So you had a. An apartment in the East Village that had a basement that people yeah. could, you could jam people in there and, re and bands could rehearse and make noise and, you know, among the uh, leaking pipes and... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, it was so bad for the equipment. The oh hot water gosh. would drip yeah. on the 
on the mixing board. Um, yeah, you would not want to keep anything precious and delicate down there. But um, yeah, so I, in 1986, I moved into the storefront mm -hmm. that used to be a head store in the 20s. So I've been told. And then it was also... Um, it was on Avenue B? On Avenue B. Well, it's still Sixth there Street. in its yeah. original glory. Um, Avenue B between 6th and 7th Street. And um, in the 70s, it was hosting a Puerto Rican um, religious community. Okay. And um, I moved in by myself and discovered a trapdoor in the main apartment. It was a storefront with high ceilings and a brick wall. And uh, I opened the trapdoor and there was a whole basement at the time filled with um, um, Japanese, can I say this on your blog, porn magazines. You can say whatever you want. This is the internet, yeah, so, the wild, so, wide world of the internet. So all these magazines were thrown on the sidewalk. Back then there was a natural recycling system going on in Wait, New York Japanese City. Japanese porn, they were recycling, or they, it was an old... Well, the, the basement was filled with these magazines. <laughs> really? And then I emptied the basement by putting the content on the sidewalk and it disappeared instantly. <laughs> they might have been worth a lot, I don't know. Wow. And That's then, actually a very auspicious beginning to that rehearsal space. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a grand start. And then yeah. we soundproofed the whole thing. And then I guess to make ends meet, mm -hmm. I started to rent the rehearsal space, much to my neighbor's grin, and then also started my own band. And we rehearsed. We spent so much time down there. That's when you started Halcyon? Playing and playing and playing, yeah. And I was one of the bands that rented from you. Mellow Maine. Was I a tough landlord? You were, <laughs> <laughs> no, you were great. I remember, I think I Gogo Bordello was also rehearsing there, and they were tough neighbors. Oh, <laughs> a lot of, yeah, they a lot had, of people I passed. think they got precedence <laughs> if we were trying to schedule something. Oh. <laughs> no, I don't know. I may be making that up. I'm sure I had preferences and was completely non-egalitarian. I apologize. <laughs> no, it was um. great. I loved it. It was such a, I think that might have been my first rehearsal space in New York. And it oh, was I didn't know such that. such a cool... I mean, what what year are we talking about? Like ninety six or something? Yeah. Well, um, I've had this place before the nineties yeah. started, so um, and many bands went through. So I don't remember when exactly Melomane was down there, but um, I remember because it was the first incarnation of Melomane, and I think maybe Fa was in it, and so it was around ninety seven or eight. Yeah. Okay. 90, yeah. Something so like that, that was on the later side. Okay. Um, the basement was difficult because it had low ceilings. Yes. You are quite tall. <laughs> a lot of people really hurt their heads when in yeah. enthusiastic moment of excitement, <laughs> they would jump like yeah. true rock and rollers do sometimes. And then they would really hurt their heads. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That was su such a fun time. <laughs> <laughs> but you came from Austria, obviously. So when yeah. did, you, did you come from Austria to New York? Yes, I came all the way from the second biggest um, town in Austria called Graz to New York, and I came to do music. And um, New York was the first stop, and um, I just never made it anywhere else. First stop meaning what? Well, I, I was so young, I didn't really quite know what would happen, but New York was my first stop, and I just got stuck. You were stuck. leaving... Um had you been in like college or you were just... Um, so what happened was back then when you would buy airline tickets, the ticket was valid for one year. Um, and so I had a ticket, I finished high school and I had a one-year ticket to, the, to wow. New York. 
So I came here and um, I just uh, had this playground in New York and felt like I learned more about the world and myself in this one year than all those previous ones. And when the year was over, I had went back to Austria and started to study musicology and communication science. And as soon as I was finished, I returned. How was the guitar? When did How did the guitar fit into that? Did you start playing guitar before you came to New York? I came back and I had this vague vision of wanting to do music. I knew I could sing. I could play guitar, not at all for my life terrible and there was only one person that volunteered rehearsing with me and I'm eternally grateful to that one person and he was called George Porphyris remember George oh I do he passed away right I remember George he was a great guy yeah he was a really great guy and he was full of enthusiasm and passion he said yes Dorit let's do it come on you can do it and we rehearsed at Tukasa Studios both of us with guitars nice Yes, and he taught me a lot. He was and I, he was very patient with me. And George that, ended up like playing with the Swans or who would no with heroin sheiks. Wasn't George? In that yes, band? yeah. He was out and about. He was yeah. very instrumental in 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 a lot of scenes in yeah. New York City. He was working for the Sonic Theater, and then he was also booking a lot of bands at this bar on Avenue B. I forgot the name of it. But everyone knew him, and he organized he and booked. He was such booked. a cool guy. Yeah, yeah, he was. So you were, you and George had your first rehearsal, and you were, what were you, were you like a band? No, I just wanted to play, and I couldn't, and he was up for playing with nice. me. So you learn a lot from that. I remember getting some chords shown by Kurt Wolf. Oh, yeah, I remember Kurt um, from he, Pussy Galore and yeah, he Yeah, he showed me a little bit on the guitar. And then I think I was looking for band members and I was putting flyers up on supermarkets Mm -hmm. and, you know, the village voice. I mean, we're really talking about 1986, 89, a long time ago. And and then several people responded. I remember going to all these auditions and that was a really good learning process of what I cannot do or what I do not want to do. I bombed one after the other and embarrassed myself extremely and embraced hmm. the motto strength through embarrassment. Yes. Who did you audition for? Do you remember? I don't remember many. I remember one band where I met the guitarist later, but I forgot the name. I auditioned for... Um, yeah, who did you audition for? <laughs> oh my God, I'm spacing on the guy's name. Their name. It only hurts when I bleed. Or, when I laugh. Oh, they had that was some hit. Oh yeah, that Remember was some. The, oh, why am I spacing on? Before Firewater, there was. Oh, a cop shoot cop. Cop shoot cop. Oh, you rehearsed. I, oh, you I, auditioned for I'd them. I auditioned as a guitar player and oh. trumpet player. Oh, oh yes. Um, <laughs> Pierre is a mean trumpet player. Yes. <laughs> not really. Very exciting. No. Anyway, it's not about me. <laughs> so, you started Halcyon then eventually, and that was like. You were I off met, to the races. I met Chad Swanberg, Richard, Rich, Richard Swanberg, and we, Richard, Richard Swanberg, wow. and um, an incredibly brilliant and talented um, musician and friend, and um, with big hands, he could make all these ninth and sept chords, and um, he took it upon me to instruct me in the art of guitar playing. And it was very frustrating because I felt I could never play as good as he plays ever. 
but I tried. Um, and we started this band called Halcyon, yeah. When they found him, they couldn't tell whether it was male or female. They had to cut the clothes off his body. Green and blue. It was heated. It was winter. Filled with narcotics worth a guitar that he sold the day before. He was a spirit. fun to watch you guys and when does the theremin come in i mean you did house on for a long time and mm -hmm. it was a really great band and it kind of broke up around i don't know 2000 what no i think early i think it was already the mid mid 90s or end of 90s i don't remember i think one of the last shows at mercury lounge after lots of touring yeah it, we we all grew a lot in this band. And it did was you write a, songs together? Did you were you also part of the songwriting process? Absolutely, I wrote a lot of songs and I you know kind of Frankenstein them together on on the guitar. So I had the chords and I had the lyrics and I had the mood. But the, so sometimes it was like that and sometimes it was a joint progress. And I think other people also brought material. We really wanted to be a democratic band. And that's maybe why you said at your last block there was so much debating sometimes during rehearsals. I mean, it's amazing what people <laughs> tried to do, like myself included, with this whole band reality where you tried to have everybody's voice be counted for every single decision. And it's just... <laughs> mind-numbingly exhausting <laughs> like yeah in retro yeah in <laughs> sometimes yeah, i totally agree in retrospect if we were so young and we took it so serious yeah. maybe a little lightness would have behooved us we took it <laughs> very very serious which is cool that's how you do good yeah, things yeah. i mean you're ambitious and you do and you take it seriously cuz everyone was wanted to do this you know for yeah. real <laughs> we yeah. were all trying to yeah, I mean, we were a big community. Everyone knew everyone, and we all did and wanted to do um, making music, and it was beautiful. And when you were doing um, Halcyon, when you came to New York, like in the 80s, what was your musical, who were your influences? Who were you into? What were you listening to? Mm, I remember being very struck as a teenager, seeing the swans back in my hometown in Austria, in Graz. And I remember my organs shaking from the low bass notes standing wow. in the first row. And I think I met Al and Norman, you know, the, the bass player and the guitarist mm -hmm. back then as a teenager. And um, so they were definitely one of the bands I listened to. I listened to Throbbing Crystal and Fetus and all these things. Um, but it was very abstract. And then coming to New York, and I think one day I saw Norman sitting in a bus going uptown. Mm. And then him coming to one of the first shows of my band at Brownies and being very supportive. And so making these connections from just having the records in my hand to actually knowing the people um, yeah ex having exchange with the people Jim that Thurow was really was magical too at that time. yeah 
yeah i've when i forgot how i met jim but that, that certainly is still a very very important person in my life so then i would like to know how you got into the, the theremin it's a pretty unusual choice and a really interesting yeah. one so i was playing in halcyon for seven years um, in a rock band, I guess we were making very complicated. We wanted to make smart prog rock. I don't know how you was influenced by New Wave. I don't know how you would describe it. I really enjoyed singing and, um, you know, getting all this pent up anger, energy out there. And um, it was harder and harder to kind of... Um, heard, I felt like I had to sing in a higher and higher and higher range to 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 be heard above the the, the big flood of the other loud instruments. Mm-hmm. And um, at the same time, really, the digital music revolution took place of people being able to have music softwares and not paying hundreds and thousands of dollars in music studios, even though it was so wonderful and grateful to to, to record with Martin Bisi a lot and oh, being his yeah. in his studio for many many hours on end was a great um, learning experience and just so much fun. He's the best. But um, so um, it became more and more evident that um, this loud singing and screaming. I wanted to do something more musical, more quiet and. Um, all of us playing equal roles, but everyone coming from different backgrounds and quite frankly wanting different things. It became more and more, it just became complicated and a a lot of work. Um, And I was at my friend Larry Seven's house Mm -hmm. and he said, Dorit, come here, let me show you this. And he pointed towards this unassuming wooden box with this protruding metal antenna (laughs) standing in the corner and he laughed and he plugged in some cable and then suddenly he waved his hands in the air and these sounds came out and he was really excited to demonstrate the theremin to me. He had it for repair at his house and I, you know, in the retrospective I call it the Houdini effect.
I've never seen such an interface producing sound. And I instantly could tell when trying it that it's very sensitive to the slightest motion mm -hmm. and that there's a really potentially really big dynamic range, mm -hmm. um, which is unusual for electric instruments. And I was really shocked that I've never really heard about it. And even though, you know, I studied musicology, but I didn't know anything about this instrument. And then, um, so it was a real watershed experience. And then I tried to find out more about it. And the, from a music historical standpoint, it's really interesting and quite tragic that it's never really found right. its place. Well, it's like, um, it's like the, an ancient uh, vision of the future. Just the way I would see it. Well, at the time, <laughs> it was really such a utopian, yeah, the yeah. first electric instrument, yeah. completely different interface than all the traditional ones. Mm -hmm. um, I really like to um, quote Lev Thurman himself. He was interviewed in the New York Times mm -hmm. in 1927, and he said, I quote verbatim, um, he presented the instrument in New York, and then he... He was a Russian... He Person. was a Russian uh, f um, phys physicist yeah. from St. Petersburg, a brilliant man. And he worked on the motion detector alarm system. Oh, wow. And because he also played the cello, it gave, while he was in the laboratory working on this, and it, you know, this system called heterodyning, it made these weird sounds. Hmm. And it gave him also the idea of turning that into a music instrument. Well, that's so interesting that you say that. That was going to be my question because obviously, like we we live in this twelve tone world of music, but there's a million, there's infinite notes in between each note. And so, with the theremin, I mean, you still live, you still perform in a classic. I mean, you know, a tradition of twelve tone music. But do you find yourself doing things that are microtonal? I mean, you're always going between notes with the theremin, right? But have you explored like the microtonal aspects of it you know as far as the bed that you're playing on do you know what I mean yes I do know what you yeah. mean um yes absolutely it, it it's an ongoing exploration the theremin lends itself to yeah. not only applied in the traditional classical you know very expressive melodic way but to also go further and utilize all these other things yeah the microtonal um, aspects um, in in contemporary composition, and I think that's still a, a very young, yet to be explored field. Um, and it's definitely very interesting and exciting to to go that lane. You can send the theremin also through any effect you want, mm -hmm. and I personally really like it when you loop the theremin on top of each other, and you have this very unique weaving quality that no other instrument really has. And lends itself especially to like you know cinematic oh absolutely explorations yeah. there's this band do you know King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard they're an Australian no. band they're no. doing all this stuff with microtonal music and like microtonal guitars but in a pop rock Oh, I want to Setting, hear. yeah, you should check them out. They yeah. need a theremin player. Maybe you should join. Um, them. <laughs> well, there's a great um, Australian thereminist, Miles Brown. So uh -huh. let's. I don't know if they they know each other, but yeah. Um, so um, you came from Austria, and mm -hmm. one of the albums that I love that you've made is Schlager on Parade, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where you um, kind of explored this Schlager tradition. Did Can you, you talk play about on that? that? 
I feel like I may have played on that. Did you play the trumpet on that? Well, uh, the, recently I was looking through uh, the website of the New York Theremin Society and I saw a song I played on with you that I had forgotten about. Um, oh, Snow. No, no, I played guitar on a, a cover you did. Oh, I don't want to set, set the world, the world yeah. on fire. And it I mentions, saw my name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, Yeah, that, that was so nice. That was so fun, yeah. Yeah, you played really well. Yeah, thank you. No, for, thank you. For, thank you explicitly <laughs> thank for... Thank you for putting my name on it. I would have forgotten. <laughs> that is a polyphonic th- version, like so that has like 10 voices of Theremin, yeah. PS guitar, and some whistling and vocals. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I don't to say. But um, but getting back to the Schlager, can you tell what? Can you explain about Schlager? The yes, Schlager on Parade. We actually um, was made 20 years ago, and Larry with me and Larry Seven, and we're actually discussing right now to do a, a reprint as it seems to be in demand. <laughs> So Schlager on Parade is a seven inch uh-huh. and um, it is a beautiful record because so many friends from yeah. the local community at that time participated and because that, that funny studio where Frank That had like red leather and it was on Lafayette Street. Is that where you recorded that? Um, Do you remember that studio? I th- it used to be Def Jam are recording you studio. Really? Are you talking Maybe about... Maybe I'm thinking of, did you see me riding on that horse? Do you remember that whole thing? Yes, I remember okay. that studio. But um, That's not where you recorded it. No, specifically Schlager on Parade was recorded at Larry's house. Okay. And I remember Michael Evans using a suitcase as the kick drum. Okay. And Baby D howling a big harp all the five flights up. And I think maybe you, Pete Shaw, played some horn instrument. Um, Kurt Ralski played cornet. Okay. And um, I think it, maybe even Paula Henderson played her saxophone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and I probably forget someone. I'm so sorry. I have to think more. But so we had all these people. Um, I it, have that seven inch. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a collector's item. And we <laughs> searched for half a year for the right mountain uh, wallpaper panorama yeah. until we found it in some dusty basement at Times Square. That was certainly the old Times Square back yes. then. And um, So to explain what Schlager is. So this was, uh, I grew up with Schlager being, you know, from German-speaking Central Europe. And um, Larry, as an American, has a completely different perspective on Schlager. And we both kind of merged our distorted um, emotional mindset to, to take Schlager to another dimension. And um, we used compositions by, who was it? I really have to think now. This is very embarrassing. Um, was it Giorgio Moroder? 
um, or another very famous, notorious 80s guy, and we took some of these original songs and just made... Made Schlager versions of them. Well, no, those were original Schlagers, oh. and we just kind of... Um, Did your way. Covered them in unorthodox ways. I see. And, and so distorted the genre completely. Schlager's kind of a Austrian slash German tradition the, of cheesy pop music from the, I don't know, 50s? Is that es correct? Ist es auch eine is one of the most successfully commercial genres in the German-speaking area. Started, I think, before the 30s, 40s, and then had its specific heydays in the 50s up to the 70s. Then musically, I mean, if you look at chord progression, maybe not the most sophisticated. Um, they're catchy, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, they're usually quite small. They're very much on the line of uh, bearable. <laughs> and you I mean, took it's a it matter back. of opinion. I just love <laughs> what you do with taste. it because you took it back. You know, you're, so, you're like, this is me. this is my my yeah. heritage. I tapped into <laughs> yeah. my heritage. Yeah. What can you do when you yeah? When you're Austrian, there's you know your heritage is is complicated. <laughs> to say to put it mildly, yeah. yeah. The Austrians have given us many things. Uh, we have taken and given, yeah. Um, well, you know, I really don't feel such a close um, affinity to the land I was born. Like once you immigrate and live, I mean, now I've reached a point in my life where I spent as many years living in other countries than in the country I was born. Mm -hmm. So you're like a, a person of many nations. But um, yeah, uh, Austria. I love Vienna. Been there a few times. You have played. I've played play concerts there. Where did you play in Vienna? You know, I played with Morex Optimo. Remember, oh. we did a tour and we played like at a street fair. Okay. It was really cool. And yeah. somewhere else, I can't remember. Uh, I would have to dig into yeah. my yeah. <laughs> into my hard drive memory to I find know. it. But it it's was so buried. fun. I just loved it. It was cool. I mean, but you can't really go wrong touring in Europe, especially in German. You know, speaking countries because they treat musicians really well. They feed you well. Don't they, they feed you really well, and yeah. they treat. They generally pay you pretty well, and they always just roll out the red carpet, which is really nice. Well, I think in comparison with the yeah. states, where it's just really uh, tough mm -hmm. show business right. from the ropes. But on the other hand, it really teaches you everything really well but it does certainly doesn't make you soft you've been traveling a lot lately with the theremin stuff like you you do a lot of um it looks like you're doing residencies and sort of concerts all over the place have you toured in the states like can you compare the two experiences <laughs> i mean it's a totally different thing being in an indie rock band i guess yeah i'm so glad i did this we yeah we um halcyon purchased a purchased a, a bus And we forgot that they didn't even give us the license, the people that sold us the bus. So we illegally crossed the country. Oh, my God. Um, like yeah. the, blue, the, the pink Com slip. Completely. Yes, oh completely insane. We illegally crossed the whole country, um, opening for Fetus and Marilyn Manson. Right. And um, I think 
it was so incredible to really get a feeling for 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 America, you know, being a European and really how big and how different the regions are and how, you know, welcoming people where we made so little money that a lot of times people took us into their home. Mm -hmm. and so you really... Um, that part of it is cool. Like amazing. that's very American. Like yeah. in Europe, when you're touring Europe, all your accommodations are are usually taken care of, and things are. Yeah. It's not like you're not going to go on the mic at the at the venue and say, "Does anyone have a couch we could crash on?" And this is the <laughs> and this is the this is the big difference, actually. Yeah. Exactly that that was exactly because um, I was touring with um, uh, Trent Müller, for instance, who is a. Yeah, in, in Europe, you always have a nice hotel and it's yeah. it's wonderful and it's well organized and you're very grateful. But then a lot of times suddenly you buy yourself, yeah, exactly. which is, over. you know, if you have one person entertainment, not so fun. If you're a band, it's better. But I remember when I was touring with um, Trent Müller, um, they went, they did a tour in America and I was opening and also playing Fairman with them. And they had the very European mindset of being in their own bubble and um, and it was all very separated. And I remember I was after the concerts, always going to the merch stands and right. being with the audience. And because I, I was so used to from these decades in America to kind of you have a relationship with them and they were not used to it. And they were they had their own little bubble and they were happy staying in it. So it was good to rip. So so there are these cultural differences. Take, yeah. yeah. Let's hear some music. On the theremin. Can you tell me what you're going to play? Um, I'm going to start with um, a classical piece. This is Aquarium by Saint Seance, just to prove that the theremin can play melodies. Because um, it's one of the few instruments that actually so easily can sound so terrible. And a lot right. of people you know, really underestimate the theremin and think it's not really capable of being the expressive instrument it can be. So there we go.
this last year, um, on very short notice, I was, you know, contacted by someone that I didn't know and I didn't respond. But then I was contacted some more by other people. And it turned out they asked me if I want to play Theremin on one song for the Danish X Factor grand finale for one of the participants. They wow. really wanted, and I said, like... Is that like a gross-out, <laughs> people doing challenges, doing crazy stuff kind of show? Is that yeah, it's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's, I mean, you you know challenges. about it, but you don't really... Yeah, yeah. And, and my first reaction was like, what? No. And, um, sense, <laughs> uh, yeah, so they had, like, the final competing young, ambitious youngsters that really go through the machinery of whatever age of information and music industry we are in now, um, competing in front of a TV audience for rates. And um, Oh, it's a musical, like a, it's like a... No, it's a TV show, The X the, Factor. Yeah, yeah, and there was a winner who's... Who wants to be, who's the best star? The, the new a, pop star of Denmark. Got it, okay. And, um, I'm so ignorant. Yeah, and they sent me the song, if I could play along to it, and it was okay. And... Um, but then the shocking realization was um, that doing it, it was all would all come from tape. So I thought, oh, you I can stand there and oh, yeah, that's, that's cool. I can do that. <laughs> so oh, that well, where is that? Can, is that can someone see that on YouTube or something? Um, well, I recommend rather seeing something else. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you you seem to it, be very. Everything can be found. But, I think this um, is a good lead into like the fact that you, you're very. Um, you keep your content close to the chest I guess things you're not putting out a ton of stuff online I, I had a hard time finding some of your music um, mm -hmm. like on Spotify and stuff mm -hmm. like that and I, I imagine that's that's um, intentional and you yes. have a philosophy behind it yes I have to crank down even more on that um, yeah. no music and the work one does should be available online of course but um, I I would like to maintain a certain quality and um, I think if something is just recorded as a bootleg with you know from far away with a horrible mix and and, and a bad visual it's just rep misrepresenting and mm -hmm. especially with the theremin it you know it needs a lot of um, atmosphere to really work and uh, I feel like there's so many bad Theremin performances out there, so it it really needs to be represented as good as can be. So I'm trying to be careful about it. But that being said, um, I'm very happy that um, there soon will be six hours of my music available to the public for everyone, and people can really listen to that. And I have no problem with that. Where will that be available? So I I just um, finished um, my first big fat soundtrack and it's a six part um, movie series. Wow! So yeah, that can then be I think online and it's potentially might even be in some time on Netflix. It's um, a remake of M uh, by Fritz Lang. Yeah. Do you know that original yes. movie? Yes. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a German crime film. It's a krimi series. Wow. So they took that whole theme and set it into the presence. And it's a really dark and edgy um, and came out really beautiful script and beautiful images. So it was really inspiring to write music for these, for these pictures with lots of snow and the 
dead children bodies peeking out of the snow and foxes running around on the playgrounds and It's a German production. And so it comes into the Euro TV, I think, in end of February. And it's premiering now at the Berlinale. But then this will have a life. And um, there I could really, you know, mix it. and, And I was really happy to bring in this very uncommercial analog and theremin sounds. Mm. And um, there are a lot of scenes in the movie where there's actually no dialogue, so you can really hear the music. But theremin has been cinematic, I think, since its inception, hasn't it, sort of? Isn't it something that was sort of used in television at the early, kind of in the early stages? Yeah, well, yeah, that's when it's reached its first height of popularity, or I guess it's never surpassed that height of popularity when they used it in the 40s and 50s for soundtracks like, um, you know, Bernard Herrmann, The Day the Earth Stood Still, or uh, Spellbound by Alfred Hitchcock. But you have a couple of really interesting videos that are out seeable. There's uh, Swamp Behind My House. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah, I loved that video. Yeah. It's the one where, that's the one where there's a woman, you're kind of, Getting involved with this woman. Oh no! Um, oh wait, no, that's a different one. Oh, so yeah, it's actually funny. So, or maybe um, that's paradox. There are two. There are two videos made with that song, and one video was made by a filmmaker that just approached me and wanted to use the music. That's oh. the one you're referring to. That tells like this whole this woman who goes to this S and M. Yeah, yeah. So that uh, I, I just you weren't gave, really involved in that. Yeah, no, but I, I gave the music for I gave the permission for the music. But the other one, um, I like. Yeah, but I mean, I'm I'm really happy if other people are inspired and take it somewhere else. But so. making music for film is something you want to continue it, with and it's get, a dream job yeah. it's so inspiring it's yeah. so fun 
And it's very different than writing songs, actually, because you have to think very different. You have to be much more minimal. So it's an interesting learning curve. And you have to stretch out. You kind of, this is not like this finite. A song is a yeah. usually a three-minute event or something. You, know? you push, yeah. put, put, you pack. It's like very baroque. You pack all of. You try to have a full circle with the beginning and an end, and there you kind of stretch it out right. more, and you really paint colors of atmospheres. I also like this record you made. Four women, four women, no cry. There's a song, Spring Breeze, that really blows me away. I can see that um, knowing your music that I love very well that much that you can relate to that composition specifically. That make that makes sense. <laughs> that really like yeah, that really Yeah, I love got me. Yeah. That's nice. great. So I mean on this podcast I try to get people to talk about politics and we we've, we've sort of I, I usually generally mm-hmm. someone plays a song and it makes me launch into some kind of political discussion. So I don't know how I'm going to do that with you, but <laughs> is yeah. there something you want to say about uh, you're you're not an American citizen, but America's going into a, a strange, dark place right now? How are we like Austria in the 30s? <laughs> <laughs> um, let's hope that there, in retrospective, hundreds of years from now, that um, we will see that there was no relation right. um, to those different um, grim passages in time, but. Um, it it is a very challenging and uh, strange and uh, horrible, um, yeah, political era. And um, in a way, as a European, I well, I feel like a New Yorker because I've been here for over thirty years. So it hurts me just as much as everyone else when I feel the the open value and all these multi-cultures that, you know, it was so nice to come here and be embraced and and, and feel like uh, part of the city and the country and to, yeah, to see those basic values um, completely. Um, it's, um, it's, so, it's so arbitrary, too, like what you just said, like you're Austrian, you know, so... You're uh, not from one of the shithole countries, right? I mean, I'm French. I came here from France. I'm not, you know, originally American. So, why it's so arbitrary who we think is okay to come into America and who's not, and who's yeah. going to create value for this? That's also you know, culture. Um, absolutely um, not okay. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting because uh, at the last few years I was back in Europe again, um, and. Um, Obviously, all the countries there also slowly embrace right-wing governments again. Also, specifically, Austria has voted um, in a terrible, um, uh, judgmental and uh, uh, government. uh, and, And people there since the 70s have just... 
take take for granted a lot of the social services. And so it is when you come from Europe and you see how hard it is for people here to even have health insurance mm -hmm. and basic education and um and that the values really uh seem to be measured in profit and profitability mm -hmm. and and econ economically and not really socially it's um, painful for me to see that happening in france too because i exactly like what you said they fought so hard to put these social safety measures in into the fabric of their society and then They're sort of forgetting. They're just taking it. They're, they're forgetting how hard they fought People for seem to take it for granted and yeah. also abused, quite frankly. Yes. A lot of, like, it, they took it for granted to easily take advantage and exploit. So the opposite. So the kind of, the most important thing is like a, a personal and, and communal responsibility of understanding that everyone is part in, in making it work or not making it work and into into question things and to have a healthy democracy. And um, in a way, I do feel having a child that's nine year old that um, actually in specifically the schools here in New York, there's more of an effort of teaching because it's all about the coming generations to Right. kind of fix and make it better mm -hmm. um, as yeah, in music as in as that. in as in politics i yeah. really always think of the of the next generations that's yeah and so i do think um in europe from what i understand they they grow up and they really don't foster so much the communal effort and it's very much everyone for themselves and mm -hmm. that's why i do have hope for for the states despite First of all, luckily, Trump is so transparent yeah. because he's not that intelligent. He's a really intelligent. villain. He's uh, like a really, yeah. And, and that is, is best case scenario yeah, in exactly. all its horrible aspect because yeah. you really can sink your teeth in and target. And it's just the, the scale from Obama tipping onto the other side and hopefully will tip even stronger after this is all done and closed into the good direction again. It's um, amazing to think, like we were just talking about all this New York stuff from the 80s and 90s, that this fucking guy <laughs> is from New York. Sort of, but he's the worst. Well, Like, I, he didn't get it. He obviously didn't ever go see a concert or go to a real restaurant or anything. Well, know? I remember Donald Trump was yeah. New York Boulevard paper laughingstock since yeah. the mid-90s. Absolutely. And that's how everyone, all of us, remember him. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and um, I've seen him many times in person, and he was always a complete joke. And, and that's why he wanted to become president, to yeah. show all of the arrogant, um, elitist yeah. uh, peers that snubbed him all these years. Right. So in a weird way, um, the the New York fancy elite um, that made fun of it, they kind of bred this monster right. and should take some risk. No, but it's... Right. Um, yeah, nobody ever took him serious. And, and the f it's interesting, obviously, if he would have not had social um, media, then we would have never had a Trump for president. So right. it's really the result of this avalanche of new technology and um, you know we have to put the brakes on or learn how to deal with it right now it's just on this wild 
carambolage and we have you know and, what was and that a word? lot of heads are rolling <laughs> i like that word say that again what was that carambolage yeah. what is that? isn't that a french word Car- carambolage it must yeah. be <laughs> yeah it means a car accident where everything is bumping into each other oh okay it's a, but it's yes i hear i know exactly what you're saying. we're in yeah. the, we're in the uh, i've said this many times but we're in the unregulated you know it's like 1915 uh, and everyone should have a cigarette to feel better you know <laughs> <laughs> everyone should have an iphone on their face at all times yeah it know? feels like you know standing at the bottom of a hill and then yeah. there's this big avalanche uh, this uh, snow okay. like just rumbling down and you can't run fast enough to 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 kind of escape it uh, and they have to learn how to build these barriers to kind of keep it at at bay. Well, Dorit, the old people like us have to teach the new kids what it's like to live without um, constant social media interface because we're the last people who actually know very emotionally directly what it's like to live without a mediated constant online presence. And so... It's now, going to be our responsibility. To now tell people. me, did we use that time that we didn't use on the iPhone wisely back then? <laughs> Could you attest to that, dear Pierre? I'm completely, it's totally revisionist history. We were so much more productive and we just... <laughs> Such bullshit. I would have loved to have something that would keep me from getting lost anytime I went outside and try to find where I was going. Or on tour, imagine having... Yeah. You know, GPS um, or whatever. Well, <laughs> I mean, to be able to wake up every day and read the New York Times from beginning to end, yeah. no matter where I am. It's pretty good. That's incredible. Yeah. But exactly. um, everyone has to really teach themselves to do the on-off. And um, right. it's all really addictive. Super so hard. That's and a, you have a nine-year-old son. I have seven-year-old twins. And... This little shiny thing, man, it is so powerful. You oh, know, he's not doing it much. He's not. not oh, you're under probably my better watch. at it. Oh, I'm so mean. He says. You are. Every, he says you're so mean. I just don't. We just don't, don't do it during him. the week. Yeah. Weekends, it's okay, but then it's like they're just junkies waiting for the weekend. When can I see this thing? It's, hor- it's horrible <laughs> it's to terrifying. see. It's terrifying. And we don't know. know what does it do to their brains. I know. Well, we sort of do know what it does. It makes well, you vote for Donald Trump. well that's already from the ancient romans to keep the populace you know entertain them with bread and games and and keep them keep them entertained and not let them think not not let them have to be too informed and just keep them distracted with bread and games absolutely and so you know we know that the roman empire came to came crashing down what's going to happen to america is capitalism going to do you fall on its face? what is your I think that things always go the middle way. So the worst possible thing is that um, it's total chaos. The world go, you know turns into um, into um, Mad Max and we all become no. tribes and ca- cannibalize each other and <laughs> enslave each other. The best possible thing is like we elect you know Elizabeth Warren or someone else and then the whole world elects their own Elizabeth Warrens and then we all become a socialist utopia that we believe in com- common you know values I think it's going to be something in the middle <laughs> and some kind of technology will probably help us try to fi- fix this shithole that we're in with the environment you know this mess that we're in hopefully but we also have to have a yeah. And this is a long-winded answer. What, what's your thought about this? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, the yeah, the planet needs serious attention, and I hope 
that we won't have Mad Max situation. I do, <laughs> I do think whoever will be the president of the United States for the next four years will probably have to spend most of this time to fix oh, yeah. what's being undone, and that's a pity. While being blamed by the Republicans and being hamstringed by our ridiculous, crazy system. It seemed that um, the, the governments in Europe after the Second World War and the reason they were so socialistic and they established so many, you know, they established health insurance and so many benefit for the average system citizen was because the wars, the two world wars by force ripped all those governments apart. Mm -hmm. So there, by force, there really were fresh starts mm -hmm. that allowed real progressiveness and the Whereas United States Amer were in a progressive direction well too, but after I mean FDR the constitution is ancient right. you know it's still based on a constitution that is how many years old 230 or something that's kind of insane oh really so you're saying they're re because the European nations have rewritten their whole charters in the, after World War II or sort of I rethought think everything I think they really um, there I've was I've never heard somebody say that that's really interesting because we always think you know the Europeans have been at, you know around the, those nations have been around for so long but they are reinventing themselves in a more real, the real gov way the government structures had to you know not that they tried to uh, not that they not did not try to pull some of the things from before no but uh, there were mostly monarchies and and different structures or fascists and they completely had to start from scratch and 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 find new systems and that really allowed um some some radical change and progress people are so so sometimes you have to like out with the old and in with the new um right we have this there's this american so in a way, yeah, sorry, I don't want to... Attitude that the Constitution is such a sacred document and it's just there's nothing like it in the world and there's it's perfect in every way, blah, blah, blah. That's very, be that's very beautiful, but um, obviously these days maybe we learn that some of these parts have been, you know, abused and, and stretched and should be railed in and rethought I think maybe Trump is the best thing that ever happened for America because it really will force the government to make serious changes to never make anything like this possible again to to rein in any possible abuse of government mm -hmm. Trump will teach future governments mm -hmm. if anything positive can come out of this that I hope is happening, and I also hope, on the other hand, that the American people learn the power—the power of protest and the power of like physically putting their bodies out on the streets. It's just something yes. they're having such a hard time like understanding. Uh, clearly, it's happening now. Yes, more. But if you look at you know European countries, well, there's such a again this flood of information. How to even find out where to go when it happens, what to do? Right. It's all. You drown in this in this flood of constant bombardment of information. So, um, how 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 to get the right information into channel? Yeah, and I think um, being an artist is 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 a nice and healthy and good example to to live a very autonomous, you know, independently from the corporate structures. Does it worry you though that? that artists these days are so willingly um, 
branding themselves this rush to brand yourself and to be constantly like yeah do you know what i'm talking about yes and um obviously i'm old school and um i remember that was one of the very prevalent things Mm -hmm. in the mid 90s when we all had bands and Mm -hmm. i remember chad swanberg talking a lot about this Mm -hmm. how they it was really not de rigueur and very uncool to to it was really all about being authentic exactly remember being, and not being commercial being that was uncool with some kind of yeah. commercial entity and being associated with it was the most uncool thing you no, could possibly we do we really felt very strong yeah. about it and that is interesting that that is yeah. so wiped away now yeah, and it's gone yeah and well there's not, reasons for it because people well not gone with anyone i mean the more authenticity someone has the the more it's being valid and the more people want to jump onto it and and manage it and commercialize it and make money out of it. But yeah. um, people still, I think you can feel or see when something is a bit more real than other things and yes. you cannot artificially create that kind of character or color. So that really is the big battle these days. And I think it still exists, but I think there's, maybe we're swinging back to an valuing authenticity and not everyone just selling out to the highest bidder but there was definitely a period there where it's just and I think it came about because the music industry died bottomed out was no longer existent and so the new music industry is you know Adidas or you know whatever movie you're going to sell your song to and that's all that's all that exists you know but yeah I'm well you can take it for me I'm totally against it but um i'm not not embracing about it i just it's fascinating to me but i because it's so foreign sometimes to me to watch people you know happily just associating themselves with just some fucking brand of something whatever it is who cares like some car or something be careful yeah (laughs) i remember in the in the mid 90s a record label taking me aside and and saying well, we would love to give you a record contract, but I just have, have to, to say, for plastic molds, I make an exception. <laughs> <laughs> the mysterious plastic PR Pressure Podcast, brought to you by Exotic Molds. Sorry, you were talking about the story from... The, yeah, yeah, commercial enticement. Yeah. So, they... they <laughs> yeah, he took me aside and said, like, fire all your band members and just get a solo deal and wow. then at every show you you get this deal with this um endorsement yes and you oh. with this shoe endorsement and you throw the shoe into the audience he was after the devil every. speaking to you <laughs> yeah and that was wow. like what was to come in decades after um certainly not for me but wow. i remember how that was very clear he wanted con- to sell but out at that at that time it seemed so abstract and 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 confusing and i i looked bewildered and and yeah but i mean it's not that people didn't have those so you must have a lot of those shoes since you took that deal (laughs) 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 that's amazing he straight up said dump your stupid well that happens a lot and i've even seen some of those friends from our era actually also actually do it and uh, but i won't mention names but i do remember two people very tight-knit building up the band and then one ditching the other because mm-hmm. in order to get the record deal. I think I know who you're talking about, but we're not going to mm-hmm. name names. But, but anyway, these things happen. But yeah. you know what? Then again, those people had long, probably long, lucrative careers and are still 
uh, absolutely not. Exactly not. Yeah, th- th- that that didn't go far. But yeah, no, okay. No, I want to no? ask you yeah. about the New York Theremin Society. This is oh, such a yeah. cool thing, and I didn't realize oh, yeah. you started it with Suzanne Fiol, who was such a lovely, beautiful yeah. person. Yeah. Have you played at Issue Project? I have. Room? We did a Mellomane did a. Oh. CD release concert in the the silo, oh, the circular room. Yeah. We 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 set up our band in a circle around the audience. Amazing. It was absolutely like yeah. magical, so beautiful. And Suzanne was just such a dear, lovely person. I knew her well, so Sus- I didn't know you you were involved. With well, her Suzanne like that. before Issue Project Room was the silo in Brooklyn. She had a, a location on Sixth Street, yeah. right off Avenue B. And I must have met her there. And um, right yeah, near your house, yeah. Yeah, right around the corner of, of 106 Avenue B. And she really um, made things happen and brought people together. And she was so full of energy. And she's definitely so much missed in the New York art music scene. She passed music away scene. from cancer, uh, yeah. what, 10 years ago or something? Yeah, is yeah. it already that long? It's or? been a while, yeah. Yeah. She was great. Yeah. So and you guys got together. So you knew she, her. she immediately tapped into and said, like, so, so I, yes. And so the theremin, I, she encouraged me to find other New York thereminists because at that time, you know, New York is one of the few cities where there actually are a bunch of them. Um, but they all came from such different worlds and seen it was literally turning over stones to find some of these players. And she provided the space. And, she had this idea to get more funding. She said, um, why don't we start the Brooklyn Theremin Society? And I was like, no, 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 um, I don't want to um, restrict it to Brooklyn. It has to be the New York okay. Theremin Society. So we co-founded this platform that's been really grown since. Turned out a lot of people are actually interested in playing the theremin, trying it out, seeing how it works, learning it. And then um, I had the idea for a uh, early electronic music curriculum because that doesn't really exist. So now I'm having 10 five-year-olds stand oh, in wow. a circle and playing Brian Eno songs <laughs> on the theremin. And oh, it's where? absolute magic. It How makes cool. my heart jump because I want new generation of thereminists and also, you know, elevate the status of electronic music to not be this stepchild Mm. Um, you see it in royalties but um, yeah so the New York Thurman Society is a platform to help promote you know the the professional use of Thurman in all different arts disciplines and it's been really growing with worldwide um, programs and I'm very happy and proud and so next year in 2020 is 100 is the 100th birthday of the theremin. Uh, it was invented 100 years ago. So there are lots of celebrations all over the world about that. But um, I thought it would also be a good idea to have something more lasting. So it was um, a thereminist from Germany that um, put the idea online. And then I thought, no, why don't we turn this into a, a physical record release? And we made a call in the international theremin community mm. for com- contemporary compositions on the theremin. And we got so many incredible contributions from wow. all over the world. Did you know that there's um, uh, a woman in Chile, uh, in or in Peru, playing theremin in a rock band, or people from Australia, from Iceland, from literally all corners of the world sending us their take on the theremin. And... Um, 
So the New York Theremin Society will release that record. Oh, wow. Great. And, um, in 2020. In hopefully the end of this year. Okay. But it's like, you know, now it's so many, it's so many, it's really hard to not so many. Are you curating that? So not so many. Yeah. And Larry Seven is doing the record cover. We're oh, working cool. on that right now. Um, and um, it's really hard to pick the, you know, the CD doesn't fit so many. And we have so many wonderful contributions. So some of them we just put online and the rest will be on the CD. Got it. Cool. And um, stunning snapshot of what people do with the theremin right now. Gospel to spread to the world of like presence and mindfulness. Right? You have to be so present when you're playing the. Theremin. It's so funny you yeah. use that comparison. Yeah. yeah, because when I first started or encountered the theremin, it felt exactly like that to me. Yeah, it's yeah. really it's like meditating. Yeah, it it in this but era. But yet using your muscles in some way, very you know, it concentrated. Yeah, it really forces you to to get a consciousness, a new consciousness to remind you of your physicality, of mm -hmm. your physical presence, because the slightest movements turns into a good or bad sound. Mm -hmm. So you really have to control or at least feel your body. And that is, um, that's really very nice to um, center yourself that way. Thank you for having me, Pierre, and it's been really nice going down a little bit memory lane. And good luck with your blog. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Dorit Chrysler. And please continue to support Exotic Mornings. As I'm recording this, things in America are still in a state of surreal clownishness. We have this Mueller report coming out today, which hopefully will get, shed some light on all the amazing corruption and bullshit being perpetrated by this administration, which will then be completely denied and whitewashed by the cowardly Republicans who are, make it their business to support, conceal, prop up, and cover up all the wrongdoing of this administration. Hopefully, we will find a good candidate for 2020. If there's a lot of great ones out there, I really like Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. Those are my top three right now, but there's a ton of good candidates out there. 
May the best one win. May we all vote for whoever becomes the candidate. And that way, our current president will then become a regular citizen of the United States, and he will feel the full weight of our justice system, and hopefully we'll get the nice visual of seeing him handcuffed and taken to jail for his crimes. That may or may not happen, who knows, but we can all hope. As far as music's concerned, please check out my website. You can see my upcoming shows with Open Kimono and Bad Reputation. I have a lot of shows coming up. I also have an album coming out by Bad Reputation called Franglais, Franglais, which is my French translations of American pop punk alternative songs. It's going to be available for pre-order soon, so please check it out. Keep listening to Pierre Pressure Podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes and listen to previous and upcoming episodes. Into the sunshine.